She's not tanning, look at us go Watching pitch perfect, twilight is torn, man Weekend is gone, watching her love Rose that went by that you don't know And I can't drink her, this is her time Away we go, mm -hmm. away we go Away we go, mm -hmm. the Annie Kendrick show Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another, another, another episode of Kicking It with Kendrick. I'm one of your hosts, Pierre Frigon, and I am joined, as always, by the lovely Jeff. Hello, Jeff. Hey there, Pierre. How's it going? It's uh, pretty good. It's been, what, a couple of weeks since we did our last episode? Yeah, behind the scenes, it's been a couple of weeks. Hopefully, if I'm doing my job right, it should have been one week since our listeners heard the last one, but mm. um, we've been recording these a little staggered. We sort of fell off our consistency train for a bit, so I wanted to... So if you're hearing this, you're hearing part of like a batch of uploads, which hopefully people don't mind. Much wow. And what movie are we talking about today, Jeff? Featuring so Anna this Kendrick. one is... Uh, this is actually one I was really excited about because this was probably... Nah, I don't want to say that. Uh, I was going to say this is where Anna Kendrick like really entered my radar. That's not quite true, but this is probably like the biggest and my favorite Anna Kendrick movie that I'd seen before mm -hmm. starting this series. We're going to talk about A Simple Favor, which is a 2018 black comedy crime thriller, sort of in the vein of something like Gone Girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, that's like the main comparison it gets in just about every critical review is... It's Gone Girl, but, and then they qualify it however they, you know, whether they thought it was better or worse than Gone Girl. <laughs> it's Gone Girl, but not Gone Girl, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I saw one review of the book, which I read in preparation for this, so we're going to talk about it a little bit. Someone called the book Gone Girl on steroids, which I think is a little hyperbolic, but that's what critics do, is we are hyperbolic, so I get it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if steroids is the right word. I will like, also but... say, though, just I, I don't know. You haven't read the book for this, have you? No. I will just say that the book is a lot less tame than the movie. Like, the book is a little wilder. Can I ask, was this based on a true story at all? or Not because... that I know. Okay, because the film makes it or implies that it is based on a true story. It never says that explicitly, but the way they ended is like the... The traditional, this is based on a tr like true story stuff with like how they yeah. like, talk about the how all the characters ended up. But I guess that's also like that's been done before. Like American Graffiti was fictional, and mm -hmm. there's a cut of that where they do that as well. So it hasn't. It's not the first. It's time. kind of a weird choice. Straight up, that was one of the differences from the book that I was not a big fan of. So like, I mean, we'll talk about it a little more at length. But like, I think that's just a weird thing to do, especially for something that isn't based on a true story. And it definitely wouldn't have fit with the tone of the book. Because like mm. I said, the book is a lot darker. But 
it's not a bad thing that the movie isn't as dark as the book. There's other bad things that we'll talk about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but also you said this movie was based on a lot of other, or I guess inspired by a lot of different movies, right? Yeah. So something that's really cool about this book, as I was reading it, I'm trying, I, I was, you know, trying to brainstorm uh, how we should structure this episode just as I'm, as I'm going about preparing for it. And what's really cool is as I was reading this book, one of the main characters, Emily, who in the movie is going to be played by Blake Lively, is a huge film buff, which means as I'm going through the book, she's listing off movies that she likes and that she's comparing her life to. And so I just made a list of all of those movies and tried to watch as many as I could, which ended up being three. But like every single one of those movies, the every single one of the movies that's referenced in the book has similarities to the book. So I wanted to like, so I, we watched one of the, we both watched one of them going into this and I wanted to talk about that a little bit. And then I watched two other ones that I'll sort of briefly touch on before we get really into talking about this movie. So the first one we watched for this was from 1955. It's an old French movie called Diabolique. And um, Pierre, what did you think of Diabolique? Um, it's, I mean, I think the plot from what I've seen is very interesting. It's just, I, it feels like one of those, this is a 1955 movie that's paced like in 1955. Like remember we're talking about Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. We were like at the, like, oh, this movie feels like a modern movie with the way it's made. Uh, yeah in a lot of ways pacing wise right this this felt like a this didn't age as well but like i think mm-hmm. the the plot from is is actually way more interesting itself than um what we saw like what we what we see in a simple favor feels like kind of like a discount version of this plot bit. if that makes sense like i mean they're very very similar but it's just i feel like this one it seems much more interesting like but i might be saying that because like i think a simple favor kind of threw away a lot of we'll talk about it later but yeah you'll see as we're talking i realize there's one person specifically who i would blame for any of my issues with a simple favor and uh we'll probably have a lot (laughs) to say (laughs) (laughs) anyway but i think diabolique as well and we'll talk about what it's actually about in just a second i think it's one that really benefits or not necessarily benefits but going back and watching it now almost 70 years after it came out, it doesn't feel quite as fresh because it's so massively influential that we've seen it a bunch just because Mm. everything afterwards was inspired by it. I noticed the very ending of Diabolique. This is not a spoiler. This is specifically not a spoiler for Diabolique. The very last card before the end credits basically just says what you saw here today was really cool. And it was really cool because you didn't know what was happening. Don't spoil this for your friends. And like, I remember that around that same time, I think Alfred Hitchcock's psycho had a similar thing at the end. Like it was such a massively different movie from everything else that was out there that like they straight up had end cards that were like, don't tell your friends what you saw here. Just tell them to come see the movie if you liked it. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a lot tougher to do now. <laughs> It'd be well, cool yeah. if maybe some movies did that, actually, but I doubt that would change anything. I mean, um, I don't think it would necessarily matter in t- today just because the structure of movies is different. I say before the end credits, but like the way that Diabolique is formatted as a movie, there are no end credits. All of the credits are front-loaded, and at the mm-hmm. very end, it's just that last title card. So like... Mm-hmm. 
movies just aren't made the same way. That's smart. It, it has like a like a very shocking kind of thoughtful ending too. So like, and mm-hmm. I well not thoughtful, but like it, there's there's a lot more to the ending you might think. So it's kind of cool how it, it has like a really abrupt ending rather than. I mean, a lot of movies now you just sit through the credits. And I guess I don't know if that, is that's if that's better or not. Actually, I'm trying to think. Like, is it better to like let it sink in while you like watch the credits, or is it more like like it's better to sit in an empty room? I mean, it's different. I think it really depends on the movie. Because like with something like Diabolique, and uh, well, I don't even know about necessarily Diabolique being a good example of it. With some of those old movies, like the movie ends and then you leave. That's you know they're made so that that's the intended response at the end because mm-hmm. there's just nothing left yeah. but i definitely found like some movies that i've seen this year uh, i'm gonna mention it again uh, everything everywhere all at once like when that movie was over i really liked just sitting with what i'd seen for a couple of minutes before i left and like you know you can do that when there's end credits and no one's trying to hustle you out of the theater mm-hmm. So I guess, it, I mean, it really just depends on the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, at yeah, the same sense. time, you know, going back and thinking about Shang-Chi, it kind of feels like a, not, I, I liked Shang-Chi, but when it's over and it's got those long credits that Marvel expects you to sit through so that you can see the end credit teasers, that kind of seems like a chore. Mm, a, I kind of like it as part of the experience. It definitely does feel like a chore sometimes, especially with the way Marvel does, like some of their post-credit scenes are just jokes. Um, mm-hmm. So I can feel kind of annoying, but you know, I think it's maybe it's, it's worse than Doctor Strange, actually. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, what? So that's Diabolik. What you and you said you saw three other movies. What were those movies? Well, I want to briefly touch on what Diabolik is actually oh, about sorry, okay. because uh, that that conversation was great. Don't get me wrong, but that's also like we we just talked about the format of movies. But I want to talk a little bit about why Diabolik is important to this plot. Mm-hmm. Do you want to briefly summarize the plot of Diabolik? Um, yeah, I can do like a, so basically you have a man, his name is Michel. It's a French movie. Mm-hmm. So these are all like all uh, French names who was trying to break up or he's trying to get a divorce from his wife, Christina. Yes. And I think he's, he's a teacher at the school, at a school. He's the principal. He he's may principal. also be a teacher. She's the principal-less i guess she's like the the second yeah, principal but she actively does teach for sure. schools worked before um and then he's having an affair with i mean it's like i guess she knows about it so it's not really enough but he's he's in a relationship sort of with another teacher named nicole and um, i believe i don't know that it's ever said but the way that they interact at the beginning of the movie kind of both of these relationships seem sour and specifically it seems like he had been having a relationship with Nicole Mm -hmm. but at the time they don't seem to be in an active relationship now that's they may or may not be but like Mm -hmm. it's sort of implied from their reaction at the beginning that that was a thing it may no longer be one Mm -hmm. I'm also interpreting a little on top of that because that that's a big ongoing question through the whole movie Mm. And then basically, so, you know, they're both, I think they're both being abused. So uh, the two women hatch a plot to kill Michelle, the guy they're seeing, and Mm -hmm. get away with it, basically. So they don't have to deal with him anymore. And they, I guess, Christina gets a clean divorce. And Nicole stops getting beaten, I guess. (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, and then I don't know how much you want 
me to do you want me to spoil well, it or is that because i feel like just this doesn't really represent why it's so simple favorite i guess like i'll try and say as much as what i think is important to talk about without spoiling it like the two of them get together and hatch a plot to kill michelle and it's like the perfect alibi but then the body goes missing and i guess that's that's about as much as i want to spoil on that is like their plot goes perfectly michelle dies everything looks good but then the body goes missing and Mm -hmm. so most of this movie is like trying to figure out why that happened what in their plan if anything went wrong and like what's happening basically what's going on and like i probably spoiled way too much although it is a 70 year old movie and i'm not going to say any more than that so i would heavily recommend it it is a little slow compared to a lot of the movies that we've watched that are more recent but it is definitely worth i I think it's definitely worth seeing Mm. and like it's it's a real experience and it is like massively influential um that's that's sort of what happens did i miss anything aside from things that i would be spoiling basically Mm. no i mean i think you're right to say it's like this is one of the first this is at a very early era of movies and i guess storytelling in general general on this scale right so you're right this is a plot i've i've seen many times before too so it's tough to judge based on that like like mm-hmm. just this year i've seen i think a tv show with that plot and and a movie well i mean i saw a simple favorite but <laughs> because yeah. of that but yeah and it's, it seems like a pretty general case but, but i think i it's it's good because it's effective it's a really interesting the idea of killing someone but then not knowing what happens afterwards Mm -hmm. is really cool. So yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like, I think that this is like the clearest inspiration on things like Gone Girl and that entire subgenre that sort of arose out of that. Like Gone Girl and A Simple Favor. Someone goes missing, is discovered dead. They're definitely dead, but then somehow they aren't. And like, that's what we're going to talk about in A Simple Favor. But like, Diabolique might have been one of the first to do that. Yeah. I think it also like that that type of movie or that storyline is extremely interesting just because of how morally gray everything is. Mm-hmm. Like for example in Diabolique, you could argue that the guy was a terrible person. Did he deserve death? No. So when or like like I mean I don't think anyone deserves deserves death unless they're like maybe a murderer or something. But he wasn't a murderer, yeah. right? I mean, um, no, but he was both two-timing both of these women and abusing them at the same time. So it's like, you know, he's a bad guy for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess it just makes it interesting because you're dealing with essentially two pairs of... They're they're fighting a force that is also... I don't know how to say it. It's it's, it's a very morally great genre because in the end, they are the, the, the protagonists in this are also people that killed... Yeah, and I think, like, another thing that's kind of important, to that we'll get to, uh, is both of the main characters here are women, and both of them have, like, very distinct personalities. Nicole is very certain of herself. She knows exactly what she's doing at every, t- at every turn. She, like, is a very much the dominant personality. She takes charge. She executes most of the plot. And, like, she just sort of enlists Christina's help. Like she can't do it without Christina, but really she probably could. She just kind of needs Christina's approval Mm -hmm. for most things. And meanwhile, Christina is very like, 
she arguably does as bad of potentially by the end or worse things than Nicole does, but she's sort of strung along into it. She's, she's pressured just enough to the point where like she'll do things that seem against her character, but she's got this sort of, I don't think in the movie it's really implied that she has much of a dark past, but she has like a dark side where she's potentially very willing to do things that seem like they would go very against her character. Yeah. Well, again, I think it gives a lot of room for, because when it's such a stressful situation that I feel like you could write anything and it could seem in character too, just mm-hmm. because of how like obviously frantic someone would be acting in a situation like that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Which I think they use in a simple favor as well. Well, uh, yeah, I think that like... They use that flexibility. You can draw very clear parallels, I think, from Christina in Diabolique to uh, Anna Kendrick's character, Stephanie, in A Simple Favor, Mm -hmm. and from Nicole to Emily. Mm -hmm. They're not one-for-one identical, but, like, they have a similar relationship, and more importantly, they just, like, have similar personalities to those characters. Uh, In the book, actually, I would argue that relationship is even more explicit, because... Stephanie gets pressured into some wild shit by Emily uh, that does not happen in the movie, mm-hmm. um, which I will spoil at the end of this episode. No, I don't want to wait. But anyways, do you still want to, anything else with Diabolique? Or do you want to talk about the three other movies you saw? Yeah, I, I struggle with talking too much more about Diabolique without spoiling it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think too much more of it is, I think it's more important to, mentioned that that is a an inspiration on a simple favor and like how it inspired it than it is to really go through the whole plot so i would say definitely watch it if you know i guess if that was out of the quest if if that was in question diabolique is worth your time but there are a couple of other movies that get brought up in the book a simple favor as emily's favorite movies or um and I seem to have misplaced my actual list, which is a shame. Oh, here we go. Yeah. In the book, and this is probably the same in the movie too. It's just not really mentioned. Emily is a huge, huge fan of author Patricia Highsmith, who, Pierre, you may know as the, well, you may know her as the author who wrote the movie, wrote the book that the movie The Talented Mr. Ripley is based on. Did you ever see that movie? I haven't. I've heard. Okay. <laughs> no. She also, she, she's like a very influential uh, thriller writer who I would argue is probably, ex- is probably influential exactly on this same genre of like Gone Girl-esque movies or Gone Girl-esque so- uh, stories. And one of the movies that she wrote that, or not movies, one of the books she wrote that was adapted into a movie that gets brought up a lot in the, in the book and there's clear parallels, but it's not brought up so much in the movie, is uh, Strangers on a Train, which was adapted by Alfred Hitchcock in 1951. A nice little trivia fact, actually, is that Alfred Hitchcock... I don't know if Alfred Hitchcock actually wanted to direct a movie version of the book that Diabolique is based on, or if someone just got paranoid and thought he wanted to, because the director who actually did Diabolique he bought up the rights specifically so Alfred Hitchcock wouldn't. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> Diabolique turned out great. 
Alfred Hitchcock would also have done it really well. It's exactly in his style. And uh, that's what makes Strangers on a Train also, I think, very... I mean, first, just a good adaptation, but also, like, very influential on this uh, on this movie and this book is Strangers on a Train. It's, it's another, like, very weird mystery. Mm-hmm. So what happens is um, the plot concerns an amateur golfer and just a, a random dude that he meets on a train. And this random dude knows a lot about the amateur golfer. And, like, the amateur golfer doesn't care too much he's just like making conversation and he's getting a little freaked out before he can get off the train but while they're on this train the other guy is like hey you know what would be really cool what if you know what if we had the perfect murder i like what if you could kill anyone and get away with it who would you kill and he basically like pressures him into saying that the person he would kill is his wife and then he goes perfect here's how we'll do the perfect murder. I'll kill your wife and you can kill my dad. And the golfer's just like, that's no good. See ya. But then the other guy, the other guy takes it as like, all right, let's do it. And he goes through and commits one of the murders. But as he said, it's the perfect crime. Is it actually the perfect crime? No, but he like, kills this person without leaving any specific evidence that it was him. And the only person who has a, mo- who has a motive is the other guy he met on the train. So basically he like does this crime and then tries to pressure the other guy into doing the other crime, which, you know, also sort of, it's more explicit in the book, but like, it's another movie where a dominant personality just sort of like, uh, just sort of ends up, pressuring the other person into you know this explicit murder that they didn't actually sign up to be a part of did i explain that okay does that make sense i think so i can see why it's similar i'm I'm, yeah yeah, i think there will be a running theme at least there's a running theme between these three movies i watched that like there's always a relationship between two people and one of them is a dominant personality and pressures the other one into a bunch of other stuff just it's a different it's a slightly different thing each time and i'm not spoiling the endings for any of these movies but the endings are all different in like very important ways i guess like diabolique has a very has like a pretty messed up ending strangers on a train has a closer to a happy ending and the third movie i'm going to talk about is uh wild for different reasons i guess i would also say all of these movies are worth watching. So if you haven't seen Strangers on a Train, also one worth checking out. Would you say they're all worth watching before you watch A Simple Favor? I think they certainly enhance it. I don't know mm. about necessarily before because ultimately, I man, the film version of A Simple Favor it kind of pales in comparison to the book in a lot of ways. And mm. um, I want to try and divorce my thoughts between the two like uh, my thoughts on the book from the thoughts on the movie, because I understand that like something can be maybe not a good adaptation of a book, but still be a good movie. And Mm -hmm. I think that a simple favor does stand on its own without the book for better or worse. Uh, Like the fact that I don't think it's a good adaptation of the book doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad movie, but like, I would definitely say, the movie version of A Simple Favor certainly works on its own. And I think that Diabolique would definitely like 
be worth watching beforehand. But I think that the other ones, not necessarily, but they are very good companions to the book if anyone does want to try and read the book. I guess the last one that I want to talk about very, very briefly is a movie from 1990, either 1992 or 1987. I forget. It's probably neither of those uh, (laughs) called Single White Female with Jennifer Jason Leigh. It's a movie in which Bridget Fonda, I believe, is the main character. She is looking for a roommate and she gets as a roommate Jennifer Jason Leigh, who is like, she's a really nice young girl. And uh, the longer they stay together, the more Jennifer Jason Leigh tries to be like Bridget Fonda to the point where at a certain point they actually look exactly the same and it's super creepy. And like Jennifer Jason Leigh is basically taking over her personality, which is a big theme in the book and a little less so in the movie, but also a little bit in the movie of A Simple Favor. Like I said, the main the main theme there is you've always got these two you've got like two personalities in both in two of the cases that I said, they're, they're uh, two women, but like, Mm. I guess in strangers on a train, you've got the same dynamic. You've got these two personalities that like one of them is clearly a, if not necessarily more dominant personality, at least a more active personality Mm. and sort of ends up pressuring the second one into a wild ride. They do not understand they're a part of until it's far too late. And that is basically the idea behind A Simple Favor, as we are about to get into. I think that's probably about as good a place as any for us to start talking about the movie. But, uh, Pierre, do you have any last thoughts before we briefly go to a break? Is this, like, the last, like, the late? Have you seen any other movies, like, post A Simple Favor that are similar to this, too? Because I can't think of any. I I can't think of any high-profile ones. For what it's worth, A Simple Favor was only a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. So it is still fairly recent. But I actually can't think of any personally since. Unless Paul Feig tries to make A Simple Favor too, or something. Here's a special message from the future. Uh, it turns out that between recording this and this releasing, Paul Feig did in fact decide to make A Simple Favor too, which we will cover eventually on this show. I'm a little. I'm actually a little surprised that Paul Feig did this movie because this does not seem like a Paul Feig. It seems very much like a Paul Feig movie. It does not seem like a story that he would be that he would gravitate towards. It was rather surprising. No, I agree. I I, when he did Bridesmaids, Spy, Ghostbusters, and then A Simple Favor. Yeah. And I think he's done something since, hasn't? Uh, yeah. There was one thing. Last Christmas. Okay, that's probably not super similar. Is that yeah, the, sim- is that the one we did? We, we watched that, right? I don't think we did. Oh, why or at least that I didn't. I'm thinking of White Christmas then or something. The one with Anna Kendrick. Oh, uh, yeah. What was that called? Happy it Christmas. Happy. Oh, Happy Christmas. Oh, last the Emily Emilia Clarks. Oh, it also has Henry mm-hmm. Golding though. Yeah. Very cool. I guess, like, the last thing I'll say is I'm happy Henry Golding is getting work. I want to see him in more things. Yeah, he's a he's a very charming man. I will tell you that. <laughs> Why don't we come back in a couple of minutes and we will talk about a simple favor. Quand j'étais petite, je faisais comme une fleur.
Hi, I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. We're hosts of Bad Dad, Rad Dad podcast, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. We love each other. We love movies and we love talking to each other about movies. And we have some pretty complicated relationships with our dads. We believe movies can open the door to important and really beautiful conversations. That's why every week we talk about the movies we watched, the thoughts and feelings they brought up in us, and the best and worst dads we found in them. We keep it totally spoiler-free so that you might be able to find something new to watch, some things to avoid, reignite the love of an old film, and maybe make you feel a little less alone in this tricky little world we live in. We love all kinds of movies. Our weekly picks can span decades, genres, countries, languages. We'll go watch the latest Marvel movie today, pick up a 70s horror film tomorrow, and finally watch that classic art house movie we've never seen on the weekend. And we'll be laughing and crying the whole way. So join us every Thursday to hear about the movies we watched that week, the feelings they made us feel, and the dads they made us wish we had. Because... My dad's dead. And my dad's a deadbeat. But as far as we're concerned... Not all dads have to be bad. A few weeks ago, I met Emily, this wonderful, elegant person. Our sons brought us together, actually. Come here, little dude. Can me and Miles have a play date today? Do you drink? Does your kid drink? Maybe? I mean, it's never too early to start teaching. I think you're joking, but great. All right, everyone, welcome back to part two of this episode of Kicking It With Kendrick, where we will be talking about the movie in the spotlight, which is kick, or no, it's not Kicking It With Kendrick. It's a simple favor. Uh, the 2018 psychological thriller slash dark comedy, maybe, directed by Paul Feig. Yeah, starring Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively and Henry Golding, as we were just talking about, who is also very charming in this movie. Yeah, he's uh, he's a very charming guy. Yeah. Jeff, what, what did you think of A Simple Favor? I've already kind of been open with it. I remember really liking this movie when it came out. Like, watching this movie is what inspired me to get the book initially as a present to my mom, which I have now inherited and read myself. Smart, nice. I remember really liking it. I read the book, and when I rewatched it, I didn't like it as much. And that certainly has to do with the... There's there's definitely an element of that, I can't even lie, that like is just I liked the book way more. But I think I think even as a movie, I liked it a little... I definitely liked it less than I had originally. That said, there's a lot to like in this movie. Uh, I, I liked a lot about it. So, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that. Pierre, what do you think in general? Um, it was... There were parts that were really interesting. Mm-hmm. I'd say as a whole, though, it feels like a kind of a mess, which I'm surprised someone like... I mean, I guess it makes sense for um, a comedy director to have a lot of trouble with tone and uh, a more complex story, I would say, based on what I've seen in this movie. But also they feel like very elementary mistakes that I, you would think of a season... Like, Paul Feig is, is I would say, a very seasoned director by now. You, you think these mm-hmm. would be mistakes that he could he could have foreseen or seen in the editing room or something and fixed them, but... It reminded me a lot of a movie from, I think, 2005. I hope I'm not getting every single date wrong. I'm going to make a point now of not looking at them just because, like, if I've been getting them wrong, I'm going to keep getting them wrong. Mm. But, like, there was an adaptation of the book The Stepford Wives that featured Nicole Kidman. And that book is super creepy. It is, like, horrifying. It's it's awesome, though. Like, it's a really good sci-fi horror novel or novella 
the movie in 2005. There's a 70s movie that adapts that book really well and has a great tone and everything. The 2005 movie, or whenever it is, is a huge mess. And it's a huge mess because it tries to be... It tries to take a more comedic tone and just biffs it at every single turn. And this movie did a lot better in adapting a simple favor than that Stepford Wives movie did in adapting the Stepford Wives, but it makes a lot of the same mistakes. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. a lot yeah. of extra characters who don't need to be there for, but they're there so that they can be funny and have like extra jokes changing random little details that that like aren't being changed for the better uh and then kind of changing the genre of the book or of the story in a way that is not beneficial to the actual story i'll talk about each one of those as we go yeah it feels like a very paul fag thing paul fag thing to do though i'm not gonna lie yeah I actually had to look after I watched A Simple Favor and just make sure that Paul Feig didn't actually direct uh, The Stepford Wives because it reminded me <laughs> a lot of that movie. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. We're going to talk about what it's about? I guess, we yeah, we never touched on that. Yeah, so In A Simple Favor stars Anna Kendrick as Stephanie Smothers, who is a mommy vlogger. She's like, this is in 2018, so YouTube was like in full swing but in the world of this mo- of this movie, she's not on YouTube. She's got her own vlog. It, she is, I think, she's a mommy vlogger and widow and widow. But she's like very involved in her son's life. She wants to be like a super mom, and she meets a woman named Emily, who is another mom in uh, her son's kindergarten or whatever. And they become friends until Emily goes missing. No, Emily goes missing after she asks Stephanie for a simple favor, which is to pick up her son after school. And I mean, the implication ends up being, and like, let him sleep over, though that's not part of the initial favor. And like, after Emily goes missing, she ends up kind of looking after both kids and they start trying to figure out what happened to Emily. And Emily may or may not be dead, but there is a body. A body is found very quickly. And then the movie sort of like unravels from there about like, it's it's very similar to Diabolique where most of the movie is figuring out what exactly happened and that the mm. most obvious solution right at first isn't actually the right one or may or may not actually be the correct one. I will say I really like the title of this movie. I'm not going to lie. I thought I thought mm. it was really cute, the, uh, the A Simple Favor thing. Because when it happened, I was like, oh, there it is. But then I was also like, it's subtle. I like it. I don't know. Yeah. When when Emily asks for a simple favor, you know that that's the plot inciting incident. <laughs> but, it, but it sounds it's, so natural. I know. Yeah. It was like really corny, but like in a good way. I liked it mm-hmm. for some reason. Yeah. Good job, Paul Feig. I, I enjoyed that part of it. So, yeah. Did I miss anything important in the plot? I mean, that's obviously I didn't go into all the yeah, details. Not much without, yeah, that's pretty good without spoilers. I am going to say, I think that as much as I have to say about this movie may be difficult to do without spoilers. I'll try and give a real spoiler warning, like as soon as I feel spoilers coming on. But just in case, there's a soft spoiler warning right here for a simple favor. We may mm. end up talking about spoilers very you never know. possible. 
Yeah. Um, so speaking of, I, okay, actually, you know, we're talking about the plot first. Did, did, I guess, oh, it's, it's kind of tough to speak about the plot. And not to make I think, spoilers, I'm not going to lie. Well, I think also, I mean, you just mentioned Paul Feig. There's a lot to say about you the wanna, directing. Okay, we can we go can straight into the directing first. first. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, it was directed really weirdly. <laughs> it was yeah. It was a tonal like it was very messy. Like I I thought for like the like the first two acts were fine and then as kind of like like maybe like halfway through the second act it like just there was a lot of really weird tonal shifts that cuz the movie was constantly veering into a darker direction and then once, like, the darkness is, like, okay, now this is a dark movie. This is supposed to be kind of messed up. It, like, turns around, and then you get, like, a two or three scenes that are extremely comedic and are, mm-hmm. or, like, they, they, they contain vast changes in tone. And it, it was just really weird, and it made no sense to me. I don't understand how you could be watching this movie. I mean, for me, I feel like Paul Feig, like there's no way he didn't see that, but he just was like, "This is gonna be like unique and quirky. Like this is it's this my movie. This is a Paul Feig movie, so we're gonna have some slapstick humor." I think there's a tone in this movie that works because it's what Paul Feig is good at. But like, like I use those words very targetedly, just because the movie does, as you said, try to go dark in some places, and that's where it doesn't work, and it's just not able to juggle those two. Paul Feig is a is a comedy director, and I'm not going to say he can't do other things. I have I've only seen his comedy movies, but he's got a pretty good grasp on his style of comedy, if nothing else. Like, you know, you watch Ghostbusters, and it is definitely a Paul Feig movie. <laughs> and and I, like, I think he's an amazing comedic director. Yeah, like, he I, has, I think I shit yeah. on him a lot before, but like he he has a really good eye for comedy. And he does it really well here because I think that like the best parts of this movie are when it hits that more comedic tone. And some of the things he's really good at doing is a lot of this plot is pushed forward by Stephanie's vlogs. One, that's a really good adaptation of the book where a lot of the book is pushed forward by like small chapters that are just her blog posts. Uh, first off, it's just a really cool, they, they bring that into the movie in a way that seems natural, but it's actually like, it's actually super cool that they were able to make that work. And more importantly than that, like those blog posts are directed in a way that's, re- that's like really funny, or at least like in that correct tone. Like there's not a lot of jokes there, but Anna Kendrick really like sells that. And he's able to go, like, if you look at the blog posts, it'll be like, uh, she'll be making a vlog and it's like, today we're going to make banana smoothies. And if you look on the side, it says, how to make brownies. My friend is dead. How to make, (laughs) how to make quinoa. And like, it'll just be, they're, they're really funny. And like, they work, that works really well. Then like, there's a lot of points in this movie that are like really jokey. Like I said, there's like an entire peanut gallery that's just added for no reason. I don't like them very much, but the jokes are pretty funny. And Paul Feig is good at directing like minor comedic characters, like a little Greek chorus. Mm. But then, yeah, when this movie tries to go dark, it doesn't nail it. And I think that Paul Feig, when he tries to deviate from those comedy bits and go into the more dramatic, darker portions... Uh, not only does he just not nail it in general, but he tries to do way too much at once. Because, like, 
in this movie, the first time that it starts to get like into uh, more thriller territory, Stephanie goes on a huge road trip around the entire coast. And it's like, stop for a minute. You don't have to do that much. You just have to like go to one location and come back. It was pretty weird how they made... I mean, I guess they might have been... Wait, Stephanie's Anna Kendrick, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, I, I thought it was really weird how they made her character extremely, like, actually competent in terms of detective work, mm-hmm. in a way, because she didn't learn from anyone. She did it all herself. I guess, like, it might be hinting that, because the, the whole time the movie's trying to say, oh, like, there's more to her. She has, like, a dark past. She's a very hardened person that's, like, you know, like, mm-hmm. gives off the vibe of that she, she's very, like, chill but the movie never establishes in any way her being skilled at detective work which like I, it's not a huge i mean it's a movie so it's not the biggest deal but that one that one did bother me a bit that is definitely one of my complaints as well because the book is really really good at balancing like what all these characters are actually specifically capable of and um it when i say that like book stephanie actually isn't that good of a detective she notices a lot more than she lets on mm-hmm. and she but like she's a very flawed person in like specific ways those specific ways being she's like a little over eager to side with the wrong people and she kind of just wants to she kind of wants to like she's looking for answers to this mystery but she's also looking for convenient answers so that she can go on doing what she's already doing where movie Stephanie is like, she figures out whatever she needs to because the plot demands it. Yeah. Which again, like, I, I feel like maybe if the movie had a lighter tone, it could have worked out more. Mm-hmm. But th- these weren't segments where the movie was also like veering towards a very serious direction. So mm-hmm. it felt a little off, especially considering I feel like a big part of the movie and the start was establishing. They did a great job establishing who Stephanie was as a person. Yes. And considering how much work they put into that, to have her all of a sudden be really good at all these things was very off-putting. So It's totally very strange because they establish who she is. They do an excellent job at establishing who she is. And then they make her someone else. Yeah. And then also, like, it, it's a very... The movie veers in a lot of directions because it feels like at first it's kind of like a haunt like it feels like a movie that's like a, almost like a horror horror thriller and then it turns into almost like this weird like almost family drama movie and then it turns into this crime thriller in a way all in yeah. the kind of the second act which was a lot too i don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing but it just it did feel like a lot cuz this movie i think this movie definitely could have been like 15 minutes shorter if they cut out maybe one or two of these like kind of unnecessary plot lines. Yeah. I think like the biggest complaint that I have about this movie specifically as it relates to directing, but it is my biggest complaint about this movie is it's kind of all over the place. And I don't think it needs to be like a lot of this movie, the characters don't end up coming across as effectively as they should, because they end up like, the movie ends up suffocating them. Like Stephanie is established really well. And then later on, later on, it feels like her character has entirely changed because if there was any natural progression, there was so much happening 
that like the character doesn't have enough room to breathe. We as the audience don't like take in that whole natural progression if it's there at all, which I don't think it is. But like this movie moves very fast in weird directions It in the second act mostly. Yeah. Again, especially after like you had an almost like a really good first act. Yeah. That I think like was very well. It was slow at the start, but I think that was good for the movie. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, anyways, I think Paul Feig did a good job in terms of like challenging himself, and I think that's cool. And he tried something new, and I definitely say this movie feels very unique because of how he messed up, if that well, makes sense. And I think that where I think there's a very specific tone, like I said, that he's going for um, in certain parts of this movie that really, really works. Like mm-hmm. Emily works at a fashion company. And this movie is incredibly stylish right down to the sound. Like the production design is great. The costume design is great. The sound design and the soundtrack is really good. That doesn't have to do with the visuals of the movie, but like it all works together to make this a very stylish movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially where like the elements of the movie aren't trying to be like a gritty, a gritty crime thriller where it's trying to be a lighter hearted family movie or a comedy movie it really nails that and not only does it nail that it gets like this really unique style to it yeah like which does make it stand out from something like gone girl even though if you watch it it's like oh i just saw this two years ago with gone girl yeah so yeah memorable movie i'd say yes actually but is this something i would ever watch again or tell other people to watch probably not like i wouldn't recommend it or anything yeah, it's a it's a cool. I I actually wouldn't mind seeing Paul Feig try another movie like this. I would um, really like to see Paul Feig try another movie like this because I think this movie is fine, and as long as he is conscious of the mistakes he made on this movie, and I'm sure he knows mistakes that he made on this movie, he could like really nail it the second mm-hmm. time. Yeah, he was really close to I think getting it right mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah. Uh, especially as I guess we'll mention now, like the acting, the performances. Yes. I think, I mean, I don't know if, how involved he was in casting and stuff. I think I thought he did an amazing job casting and directing the actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than like the child performers, I think everyone else well, in this movie was really well done. Well, the child performers, and then also the the weird comedic trio. I guess we see once in a while that. They yeah. were. I think they could have been better casted because they were supposed to be like the funny group of normal parents, but they just felt really lame. I don't know. Yeah, they they had some funny jokes, but I didn't find them funny because they clashed with everything else in the movie. Yeah, it was. It felt like those. Oh, we're kind of getting back to directing, but it, it felt like those. Uh, like you know how in in a Judd Apatow movie, there's like the the stoner group or something like that. Mm-hmm. There's like the main character, and they have like the side characters that hang out together. It felt like that, like that group, like from Knocked Up. It felt like the stoner group, except in this case, they were adults. And um, I'm pretty sure it was literally supposed to be that because there's one scene where they get swatted, and they're literally all hanging out smoking weed. <laughs> yeah, it's like, so oh, it's, you just stole this from Judd Apatow. Why? Yeah, that's what it Why felt like. <laughs> but then you didn't have the insane like screen chemistry of the Judd Apatow group that he would choose to, to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just kind of have this lame, like kind of discount version of the Judd, Judd Apatow stoner group. 
making commentary yeah. and stuff, which is unfortunate. I thought that was maybe a cool idea. It just like it didn't again tonally very off and I wouldn't have minded it if the tonal difference if it was actually with better actors and funnier. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Anyways, like again, I I saw Crazy Rich Agents. It's the only other movie I saw with Henry Goldling. Golding. I didn't really. I thought he was good in it, but I wasn't amazed. I was a very. I was thought I was very impressed with him in this. Mm-hmm. I thought he was really good. And the same thing with Anna Kendrick. I, I mean, I don't want to spoil my my rating for later, but this is probably one of my favorite performances by her. I agree. Uh, by a long shot. I think she's so perfectly cast in this role mm-hmm. and she just really, really nails it. Like, mm-hmm. I'd have to think if this is my favorite performance by her, mm-hmm. but if it isn't my favorite, it's like top three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She nails like the, I mean, she's perfectly casted in terms of like, she's just like so, like a normal person. Mm-hmm. But I love that there's like this this really big awkwardness and insecurity to her that kind of layers in with the really dark past that we find out she has. Mm-hmm. But like, so like when that stuff comes up with the dark past, it doesn't feel like completely out of nowhere. It's like when I was watching this character, I already felt uncomfortable, even though she wasn't showing it on the surface in any way. But it was mm-hmm. just like the way she kind of acted. You could tell there was like, you just felt like there was something off. Yeah. And I think that the way, at, once again, directing, there's a scene in this which is a spoiler but like i think is it is it reasonable to assume that we're not going to talk about the plot specifically in detail because i think it just sort of ties into everything else sure well, whatever you want i i, okay. I will talk about oh, plot no i was just gonna say because like i want to talk about the plot i just don't want to necessarily I, I i'm gonna say something but this is really more of a comment on anna kendrick and the directing specifically it's just kind of a spoiler yep so like this is a little bit of a spoiler. There's one scene where she's talking about a she's talking about the relationship that she had to her brother. And she's saying, you know, oh, I met my brother at, the, at uh, my dad's funeral. And he walked in and like, look at that. He's the spitting image of my dad. But as they're showing that flashback, you know, she's saying it very matter of factly. She's like, just saying, oh, I met this person. We hung out, blah, blah, blah. As we're seeing it, it's framed as like, a very romantic scene. The guy, like a very romantic scene, but like with no music, it's just sort of like, it's kind of creepy, like in the background of her just like talking. So like this dude comes in and she says, and we hung out. And as she's saying, like, we hung out very innocently. You see her and her brother, like get in bed together. And again, it's framed as this, like (laughs) it's framed in this way that, ends up being super creepy just the way that it's juxtaposed but like if you put different music behind it would be a really romantic scene the scene where she talks about her past is delivered so perfectly by anna kendrick and directed so well by paul feig that it really Mm -hmm. like i mean this is why we're saying in the first in the first act of the movie she's so perfectly established as a character that we don't need anything else yeah that that scene was really creepy and disturbing Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna lie but it doesn't like I wouldn't say I like how they didn't make it very explicit. I don't know how to say like they they didn't do because I feel like in some movies they would just show the whole thing and you'd be more grossed out, but that it just kind of leaves you to like the imagination in a lot of ways, even though they do describe well, I mean, it because like whatever you're gonna come up with is gonna be worse than whatever they could show, yeah, exactly, which, is, which like I don't know if this is actually something that Alfred Hitchcock 
like talked about a lot. But my dad, when I was watch when I watched my first Alfred Hitchcock movie, my dad said, "Yeah, they don't have to show you what happens with the birds. Anything that you can imagine is going to be infinitely worse than whatever Alfred Hitchcock could put on screen." And so, like leaving that up to your imagination is going to give is going to be way creepier. And it works in this movie because he does that so well. Oh yeah, for sure. Which is honestly. A surprising amount of restraint for Paul Feig, if I'm going to yeah. be honest. Um, so that's kind of cool. But yeah, uh, also Blake Lively. I've never really liked Blake Lively in anything. I mean, I thought her character was kind of annoying in some ways. And I don't know if that was just her or the character. I think that the way Blake Lively plays Emily is arguably... The, like, I would, I would say that that's not the biggest departure from the book, but I think she's the worst adapted part of the mm. book. At yeah. least in terms of the characters. But like Blake Lively does, st- she is perfectly cast in that role. I just mm-hmm. don't like the way that her character ends up being written for for this movie. Yeah, I don't like, I don't know what was in the book, but it just felt very kind of like try hard edgy, if that makes sense. And I guess that might be part of the character, but it was just very like, yeah, I don't know. It, it felt it, like a confident character written by someone that wishes they were confident if that makes sense like that's what they think confidence looks like but again that's i think that's part of what the character is so it's like that is definitely part of the character in in the book it comes across a little more naturally she is Mm -hmm. extremely arrogant like Mm -hmm. yes she is super try hard the way that you described but also she is like very capable and potentially very dangerous which they kind of do in the movie except it doesn't come across as naturally Mm. in the book she just like does whatever she wants and she knows exactly what to hold against people because she literally works in press she controls information for a living so like she's just very good at it and as part of that she also thinks she's smarter than everyone else and can at least back it up by being smarter than a lot of people but that makes her very standoffish and mean which she is in this movie as well but she does it through like petty insults in this movie, which like isn't as interesting. Yeah, it's like a little. It just feels kind of immature. I don't know how to say it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I thought she she herself. This was one of her. Again, I haven't seen her in many things, but I feel like this was a very good role for her. <laughs> that makes she sense. was definitely perfectly cast. Yeah. As, so um, yeah, I haven't seen her in very many things either. I just remember I saw her in Gossip Girl. Huh. I've seen a couple episodes of that, but other than that, that's it. And Gossip Girl is definitely not known for its amazing acting. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, what can I say? I guess, like, very briefly, uh, you talked about how much you liked Henry Golding. Do you want to mm. talk about that more? Oh, yeah. I, I just thought he he struck a good mix of, like, he was extremely charismatic in this movie. Mm-hmm. But then also, there's just this, like, also, like, uh, like with the other like with Anna Kendrick, I thought he did a good job of kind of layering it. Like I thought like he seemed very confident, but you could also tell he was very insecure and lost. But then there was also a small part of him that was like, definitely felt like he was deranged. Mm-hmm. So again, like the layers that I, I feel like he was able to put out in the performance helped a lot. So yeah, it was like yeah. a very versatile role from him. So I think him and Anna Kendrick both knocked it out of the park for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think with Henry Golding's character, a big part of that character is supposed to be like, does he know more than he's letting on? And mm-hmm. Henry Golding is able to like do that. Like he's able to be what that character needs to be. Like 
is he hiding something while also managing to come across as pretty clueless if at the same time like henry golding in this movie is definitely hiding something it's just a different thing that's not actually relevant to anything that it's not actually relevant to emily and stephanie really because in this movie i guess like yeah in this movie he's hiding he's basically hiding an affair but like it's not relevant to what they would think he would be hiding like does he have anything to do with emily's death well, maybe, but actually, no, he's hiding something completely different. Yeah. But yeah, you're always like, because I feel like in a lot of ways, he always felt like the most trustworthy person. Mm-hmm. But then also, as a part of you, he's like, maybe not, you know, the whole time. Yeah. So I, I did like that a lot. And that, I think that's what really made the movie work, too, is that you have three, the three main characters are all, I think I like how they all have, they all have reasons for being the way they are. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think the, the movie does a good job of, like, reflecting that and, um, I guess, making you relate to the characters. But then also you just realize all these characters are really fucked up, too. Yeah. And you really shouldn't like any of them. And that, like, there's no winning. Like, they're all bad people. Mm-hmm. Which I, I also, like, it's, it's, it was just nice because it's, like, it's, it's just a very, again, like I said earlier with, like, it's a very morally gray type of movie where I feel like you might be cheering for someone, but really you shouldn't be cheering for anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that like what you just mentioned, that is a big theme of this entire story is that like, it's, it's secrets. Like the whole point of the story is that all three of these characters have like pretty deep secrets that they just can't tell anybody for whatever reason. And I think this movie, but also that those secrets really make them who they are. And that's the part of that message that the movie really ends up getting across. Because even when you first meet any of these characters and you don't know their whole past, you know that they're like, they're very good at showing that there is a lot more to them. Like they're all giving pretty layered performances. And then when we find out those things, like when we find out what those secrets are, you know, those, those end up like making the characters make more sense, I guess. Mm-hmm. So like that's a really good thing that this movie is able to bring up across. What I think this movie is not able to really adapt from the book is the relationships that those characters have to each other's secrets. Mm-hmm. Because in the book, no one actually cares about anyone else's secrets. And when they find them out, like, well, that's that's not quite true. All of the characters relate differently to each of the other characters' secrets. Like when Emily finds out Stephanie's stephanie's big secret like what stephanie's hiding it's like emily doesn't actually care she's like that's not an issue but stephanie clearly thinks it is so she uses it as blackmail until she gets something better in this movie emily thinks that's gross and knows that stephanie thinks that's gross and she's gonna hold it over her head forever Mm -hmm. like also in the book when stephanie finds out different characters secrets she like has a different reaction to those as well and i think that the movie is not as good at portraying those because like in the movie, everyone's various secrets are just like, they matter a lot to that person. And because they matter a lot to that person, they matter a lot to everybody. And there's like no wiggle room there. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm, I'm kind of speaking a little vaguely to avoid spoilers. Yeah. It's, it's kind of tough. Cause honestly, like the, I mean, like you said earlier, like the, the secrets, 
are really what make the characters in the movie work. So it's, mm-hmm. it's tough to, to say that. But yeah, I, I um, it, it is cool. Like I, I guess that is a theme of the movie that I wish they highlighted more. It kind of feels tossed aside once it kind of goes into more of a crime thriller direction. But yeah. And it ultimately, like, in the book, it ends up leading to a much, much darker ending. Mm. Because, like I said, a big, kind of the way that Stephanie uh, is portrayed in the book is that while she's looking for answers and she wants to know the truth in whatever, like, to this mystery, she's also looking for convenient answers. So once she figures out what she believes is the truth the first time, she's overly willing to just believe what people tell her, even if she knows that those people have done nothing but lie to her in the past, which means that I'll say it again at the very end, just because it's a huge spoiler. But like when Emily just provides her a convenient solution at the end, she goes with it. And that's the end of the book. Like I I finished reading the book and I'm like, Oh, that's it. That's just the end. Wow. That didn't work out for anybody. Where in the end of the movie, it's basically a happy ending. Yeah, I didn't. I definitely think this could have used a more bleak ending. Just because, again, I, I think all the characters, even I think it, like a bleak ending in terms of like I don't know what happened in the book, but like if I was gonna say all the characters died, I wouldn't necessarily be sad. <laughs> I would be well, like, yeah, that's fair. I think that like a good comparison to this, and I've brought it up a lot because everyone else always brings it up a lot this is a movie that is gonna that is worth comparing to Gone Girl. Because I think that Gone Girl... I don't think that these movies should be the same. But Gone Girl is like the perfect version of this kind of genre movie as a thriller. Like, not as a fully serious thriller. And I think that the ending of Gone Girl really, really works. And while I don't know that the ending of Gone Girl, like a very similar ending, would have worked for a simple favor it definitely needed something more along that tone than the basically cheap joke that it got at the end. Yeah. Oh God, that joke, dude. Oh geez. Yeah. I couldn't believe what I was. <laughs> Do we want to talk? Spoil- I feel like we're kind of. It, we're dancing we, around it so much. We yeah, need to talk spoilers. Especially like we haven't really talked about the plot that much and you want to talk mm-hmm. about the book, right? So a little bit, I think I've talked about the differences in theme from the book. Mm. most of the rest of the differences in the book that I have to talk about have to do with the ending. Yeah. Primarily. Okay. Well, okay. Well, spoilers from here on out. Yeah. Let's get into it. I guess Um, the the first thing that I want to say, because this is the last thing I can say before talking about the ending, but it is still a spoiler. Uh, Henry Golding's character, Sean, mm -hmm. in the book, he is a stockbroker and he's doing important business. And it kind of... Sounds like he's written by, I don't know how much, how much Darcy Bell knows about the stock market because I also don't know anything about the stock market, but he's written, his job is kept very vague because she, <laughs> it kind of feels like because she doesn't know enough to put in details, which is fine. She yeah, doesn't have to put in okay. details. Yeah. In this movie, he's changed to an English professor, which I personally didn't like just because in most movies that I've seen an English professor in, the English professor is always having an affair with one of his students every (laughs) single time. And look at this in this movie, he's having an affair with one of his students. And I'm like, like why replace stockbroker whose job actually isn't super important to the plot with English professor who fits every English professor cliche. Like you don't have to do that. 
yeah, so that was a little was... bit of a pet peeve of mine. That's fair. I guess I don't know. Maybe they. Well, I was gonna say I don't know why they did that. I guess it gave them a convenient way of having him be having a uh, an affair without like needing to introduce a whole new character. They can just be like, "This was the TA or something." Like, I mean, I guess. Yes. Also, I don't know. also in the book, I think that it would have been a little more difficult to adapt like Sean's personal secret from the book uh, into this secret yeah. because in the in the in the movie his secret is that he's hiding an affair yeah. in the book his secret is that him and emily planned to commit insurance fraud and the whole thing that emily is doing is not necessarily something that he planned because he was sort of this is where it uh really ties back to the movie strangers on a train emily sort of like tells him this whole plot and just expects him to go along with it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, cool. Can you shut up now so we can talk about literally anything else? And like what he doesn't realize is that by sort of nodding his head and going along with Emily's whole plot to basically just get $4 million in insurance money, by just sort of nodding along and listening to her plotting that, she's taking that as he's all in. So his secret in the book is that he actually knows all the details of her crime he just doesn't realize that's what she's doing because like he was sort of like absent-mindedly paying attention but since he knows all of this he can't let any of it on as as like details come to him because well then he's an accomplice and he's ve- and like it's he can't really explain oh my wife was telling me these things that I wasn't paying attention to without it seeming like he's you know trying to commit insurance fraud with her because that's kind of what is happening Hmm. I, I I did. I think I liked how the movie because I was expecting them to be in on it together. That's what it felt like the natural conclusion. Mm-hmm. But I did like how they twisted that in a way that like I was really surprised when it turned out he actually had no idea what was going on. Yeah. Um. Especially with all the stuff in the in the middle where he's like, "Oh, you're acting crazy. Like, there's no way she was like actually there. Or that you're just you're being paranoid." It, it, like the way he was gaslighting her, it definitely felt like mm. he was in on it from the start. So I did like how they veered away from that. I don't know how they like introduced how they set it up more in the book, but yeah. Like in the book, it still works with him sort of like, it turns out he didn't know what was going on because he knew the details. He just didn't realize Emily was serious and he didn't take her seriously until he had no other choice but to take her seriously, which comes across in the book, but I think would be very difficult to adapt into a movie. Yeah. Like it it worked in the movie. Personally, I think that like him having an affair with a TA is an extra step they didn't need to do. I thought it was just sort of extraneous and didn't add much in the movie. And like I don't know. I don't know what the version of the movie looks like without that though. I think the affair was just kind of nice in terms of because he was he was saying he was in love with Anna Kendrick's character. So it gave mm-hmm. me a reason to believe that there was something else going on there. That's why I was right. more suspicious of him because he was very evident. It was very evident that, well, he might have loved Anna Kendrick, but he was maybe he's a polyamorous person. I don't know what him and his relationship was like, but there was more to him than we knew. And I liked that. And I liked that they didn't delve into it too much because it helped make him more mysterious, I think. It's definitely important that he's suspicious, 
not guilty in the end, but also not a complete red herring. Yeah. Like, he needs to fit all three of those things. Yeah. And I think they did that pretty well, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. In regards to the ending, though. So this movie <laughs> ends with Blake Lively being hit by a car. <laughs> in a very comedic way. <laughs> oh, yeah. She just, like, walks out. She's, like, yelling at Anna Kendrick, and then she gets hit by a car. And she does the classic thing where, like, it doesn't look realistic when she's hit by a car. She does like a, it looks like someone like cut out the PNG of Blake Lively, spins it a couple of times and drops it on the other side of the car. It's really funny, but like it also seems really lazy. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of uh, the ending of Mean Girls where uh, Rachel McAdams get hit by the bus, but even more comedic. Because of the spin? Yeah. But in Mean Girls, that's like that's the tone of Mean Girls. Though. Yeah, it's supposed to happen. Oh, actually, I always thought that was kind of tonally off for Mean Girls. But anyways, it, it was a comedy, though. Yeah. Whereas this was supposed to be a very, like, a, a crime thriller. I, I thought the, that gag, especially they followed it up with... <laughs> now, like, it's kind of funny when I think about it, but they follow it up with one of the stoner dudes from the discount Judd Apatow group being like, you couldn't hear the Prius because it's electric or something. And he says, like, and dangerous. I quote, America's hybrids, silent, but deadly. deadly. <laughs> and then she punches him in the ball. <laughs> it's just like... I was just like, this all happens in the span of like 10 seconds too after a really like intense or I, okay, maybe not intense, but a very odd but serious showdown between all three main characters. And it was just like, what, what is happening? Paul, same thing with like, I, I don't know. I think that's the scene Anna Kendrick confronts Blake Lively in the graveyard. It's the first time we see Blake Lively is actually alive. Or no, it's the first time Anna Kendrick finds out, sees Blake Lively's alive in person. Mm-hmm. And and then it's like a very serious confrontation and it, it, like, it ends in a way of like, oh, what's going to happen next? I think this is the scene. And then it cuts to like a really weird rock. Or, no, it was like a rap scene. Like Anna Kendrick was singing along to like a really bad rap song in her car. And it was like the tonal shift was really off. It, it it went from like again from like a really serious like kind of crime thriller to like almost like a stoner comedy again. Like that's a very yeah. like you know singing along in your car is a very it's like Wayne's World. Like that's not a that's serious a girl movie. boss moment, dude. <laughs> I don't know. It was just it was weird. It was, it was stuff like that, and that all all that stuff happens in like the third act. I want to say so like. Yeah, it was just very tonally confusing. I don't know why Paul Feig... If you're going to add comedic moments like that, just do it at the start. When, like, the... the, the, the anyways, it, it was weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the third act of this movie is kind of a mess. Yeah. And, like, I don't know. We were, you, you were laughing about it. And, like, I'm not going to pretend I didn't laugh <laughs> during the third act of the movie. But also, I feel like I was... I was laughing, I guess, bet- because the movie wanted me to. But it shouldn't have. It shouldn't have wanted me to because I didn't like that wasn't to the movie's benefit. Yeah, it didn't make it better. I thought it's almost like Paul Feig was like trying to pull off like 
he was trying to make the worst joke as funny as possible by having the whole movie be serious up until that point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was. It was. Really, I wouldn't say that was good though. No, because well, I don't know. It's hard to say because either way, I think the movie had already by that point kind of thrown away. Because honestly, once Blake, once you had the massive exposition scene from Blake Lively, I think a lot of the movie lost its luster. Like the the mystery mm-hmm. wasn't that. Like the the solution to the mystery was honestly wasn't that interesting. I don't know why. I like. I was really excited to see how she did it, but it never felt like a huge deal to me afterwards i don't know like i just lost a lot of interest it might have been the way they explained it because it was just pure exposition but like yeah i also think that a lot of the plot details in this story not even this isn't even necessarily a movie thing this is just the whole story kind of feel like telenovela plot details like how was she able to fake her death she killed her twin sister that you didn't know she had yeah it's like (laughs) that's not necessarily lazy that just feels kind of like a melodrama. Yeah. They reveal, we see a scene with her already being alive pretty early in the movie. So we we don't really get that huge, like, sus, like we're, we're never really questioning whether she is alive or not. Mm. It's more like, oh, she, she, she was alive. And then we hit this scene and it's more about the confrontation. But it's like, she's explaining how she survived but I feel like the important part was that she's alive. Like once we find out she's mm-hmm. alive, it's like the mystery doesn't even matter as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because her her plan was literally just get the insurance money and bag it, which anyone yeah. could have guessed at the start of the movie. Mm-hmm. There was no deeper meaning to it. There was more in in terms of why that why she got to that point. But yeah. like the motivation was still what everyone was expecting. Yeah. I mean, actually, I think that, like, the plot of (laughs) the whole resolution to the plot being she wants to commit insurance fraud is kind of funny. Like, just because she's doing this whole elaborate scheme to collect insurance money. It's like, oh, okay. (laughs) Especially because, okay, this sounds weird, but, like, she's obviously has a lot of money. Like, she works for that huge company. I know they, they talk about her being bankrupt or whatever, but, like, there's no real reason why she should be close to being broke unless she already spends a lot of money. But if she is already spending that much money, how much is $4 million really going to get her? It's going to last her like a few months because it's obvious she loves buying extremely expensive clothes and living in really nice houses and drinking expensive gin all the time. Or Ryan Reynolds gin, actually, but yeah. Oh, yeah, it was aviation gin. Yeah, I, I didn't that. like that. I thought that felt... I don't know why. It really took me out of the movie. <laughs> I don't know, because I've seen it. I've only seen aviation gin on in ads. I've never seen it in person, so I don't know. What was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So in the book, that's that's another big theme, is they don't need the money, which is part of the reason Sean is never paying attention when she's like talking about this whole big scheme she wants to do. He's like, I guess she's a thrill seeker, but like we don't need the money. I'm doing well at work. She's doing well at work. That's going to get us however many millions of dollars. But like, in addition to that, we can never go back to our regular lives. So we both lose our jobs and we have to coast on this money for however long. But like, 
that's ultimately going to be worse for everyone. So why, why would we even do that? Which is the reason Sean like never pays attention because it's such a stupid scheme or it's like such an elaborate scheme for basically no reward. And in this, they like them being bankrupt, I guess makes it make more sense. But also I guess it's kind of even weirder that Sean like absolutely isn't in on it in the movie at all because then because like now he's got a reason that he should be in on it because they're actually bankrupt or whatever yeah and she easily could have gone away with murdering her sister too yeah like no one her sister was like what a a, a heroin addict <laughs> like, yeah. and like they only found the body because they thought blake lively was missing so like mm-hmm. she could have easily gotten away with the murder and gone back to her life So I don't know why she didn't just do that. That would have made a lot more sense. And I think that like, back to what I was saying about like the relationships that other characters have between each other's secrets being a main theme of the book, that leads to a couple of things that just like don't end up in the movie, which is a little sad. Cause like, for one thing, she kills her sister, but like her sister, like in the book, In the book, I don't think she even kills her sister. Her sister kills herself and she actually goes to like try and stop her sister. And then like, like as her and her sister are hanging out, she's like, well, the only way that my plan can work is if she dies. So maybe I should just enable this instead. Mm -hmm. And so like you get this extra element to Emily that's like, well, part of her is sympathetic because she clearly cares about one person in her life. But also it was convenient for her to not only let that person die, but to help that person die. And so like, is this something cool? There's an aspect of her character right there. And then at the very end, this is where I'm going to spoil the ending of the book. Emily comes back and her plan basically goes up in smoke because the insurance people are on to her because of a couple of tiny details that don't make sense in her story. And she didn't realize the insurance people who hire actual detectives would not be, (laughs) she didn't realize they were going to be smart enough to put two and two together. So she comes back, her story doesn't work out. So she tells Emily, instead of telling Emily what happened, she tells Emily the details that she like can't falsify and then says, but I did all this to get away from Sean, who is abusive. And then Because Emily now has had, or not Emily, and because now Stephanie has had Emily explain the parts that she didn't understand and that, like, Emily was clearly lying about, she's like, oh, Emily would never lie to me again and just goes with the most convenient solution, which is, all right, Emily is being abused. And then the book ends with Stephanie actually helping Emily to get back to her own life to her old life and kick Sean out of the country, get him deported because he's abusing his wife, basically. Not actually, didn't actually get him deported, but like basically force him out of his life because, you know, Stephanie doesn't have to ask any more questions if she just goes along with Emily's story that Sean is abusive. And so the book ends on a really bleak note because Emily doesn't get everything she wanted, but she gets most of it. And then Stephanie's just like, well, me and her don't talk much anymore, but we're still really good friends, right? And they just don't talk anymore. And Sean is completely out of the picture because he had to go back to England because if he comes back to the States, he will be sued. Mm -hmm. And there's this whole thing. 
So like the ending of the book is super bleak because the ending of the book is actually a lot more in tone like Gone Girl. Mm. I think it, I, a part of me was really, I, I almost wanted to see Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively team up and like they, they start their own family and they take the insurance money and then they fuck over Sean, basically. I thought that, I thought that would have been interesting. Which is very close to what happens in the book. So like, I don't know. I don't know why they decided to go with the ending they did in the uh, movie. Yeah, it felt very cliche because it was just like the person that gets fucked over in the end is the one we expected to in the first place. It's a very happy ending, kind of. Yeah, sort of. (laughs) Even though, I don't know, I would say Anna Kendrick's, I mean, yeah, Anna Kendrick's character is is really, really fucked up. Um, It's cathartic in the way that a traditional ending is supposed to be, which to me is not satisfying, but it's like the person who did the bad stuff gets punished. The person who we're supposed to root for, everything works out for them more or less. And the other people either have a good ending or a bad ending, depending on whether they were good or bad. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like not super satisfying as an ending. It felt like Paul Paul Feig just wanted to do like, in the end, I feel like a, a big part of him is he, he's a blockbuster director, like almost at heart in some ways. Mm-hmm. So I feel like he he really wanted it to end on like more of a blockbuster note, which I think yeah. worked. This movie actually made a lot of money. I was really surprised to see that. Yes. Um, so I, I in in that in that sense, I think he knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, even if it wasn't the best idea for the movie itself. Yeah. So like. Ultimately, I don't actually know how this movie could have necessarily been better. I think ultimately it was fine. Like as a movie, completely divorcing it from my thoughts on the book, it mostly works and it's pretty okay. Yeah, I'd agree. I I liked it. I enjoy, I enjoyed watching it. Would I mm-hmm. again would I watch it again? No. Would I recommend it to my friends? Probably not. Like, if you wanted a like a, a funny movie to watch, I'd I'd recommend like a lot of there's other Paul Feig movies. Like, I think Spy is one of the best comedies ever, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would recommend that if you want to watch an actual crime thriller movie like this, just watch anything. Like, watch Gone Girl or anything directed by like David Fincher. <laughs> if one of my friends came up to me and was like, "I really liked Gone Girl, but I wish it was funny," I would be like. I've got a movie for you. <laughs> yeah. But who but is asking that? Case, <laughs> yeah. yeah, in any other case, I liked this movie. Would I recommend it? Well, in very specific circumstances. But other than that, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. Um, so yeah, I'd definitely say this is like maybe like a 5.5 out of 10, 5 out of 10. Yeah, yeah, I'd probably put it around the same. And in terms of like within Anna Kendrick's filmography, I think it's like firmly mid-tier. Probably upper mid tier, but like not up, not higher tier. Yeah, upper mid tier. I would agree with that. But in terms of her performance, I think this is one of her best, like top three, maybe even. I'd say I. I mean, it might be recency bias because it's hard for me to remember all the movies. But I'd say this is her best for sure. Mm-hmm. I never. I honestly never thought she'd be able to. Like, I never thought of this character for her. Um, if that makes sense, like I never thought she could play such a twisted character so well, but like just I think the way she acts contrasted with who she is in that movie as a person just makes so much sense. 
Yeah. Also, maybe most importantly, I would say that I don't know if I've said this before because I honestly don't remember if it applies to any other movie specifically, but this is the first movie where I'm where I watch it and I'm like, Anna Kendrick carries this movie. Not mm. to the degree that like no one else is doing their part in this movie, but Anna Kendrick is like perfect as a leading lady in this movie. And like not that she can't do that in other movies, but I think this is the first time where I like where that stands out as like she's a big part of the reason this movie is good. Yeah. She's, I can't, I, I honestly can't imagine anyone else in this role. Yeah. That could have done it anywhere as well as close to her. So really well casted, Paul Fee. So, Congratulations. There is one other thing I wanted to bring up and that is obviously I read the book to this, but then I read the book and I watched the movie and I wanted to see if there was anything about, because when I watched the movie, my gut instinct was that I did not think it was a very good adaptation of the book. And I've come around on that a bit. I think that a lot of elements of the book are adapted really cleverly. But overall, I still think the plot is like pretty messy compared to the book. However, I wanted to know, like, did the author ever comment on this movie? And she did. And the author really likes this movie to the point where she considers this to this, like, I don't want to put words in her mouth, so I, I won't. But from reading her article, which I will link in the description of this podcast, it sounded to me like she sort of, she's seen this movie so many times that like the story of this movie has supplanted the story she wrote in her head. Like basically it sounded like the way that she described it, it sounded like she kind of considers this the definitive version of her story which is pretty interesting. So I will link that. I'll like uh, link that blog post that she made in the show notes, because I think it was a really interesting read. And more than that, like, I think it's just cool that the author actually really liked the movie. You know, I've seen authors comment on their, on movie adaptations of their stuff before. And like, usually not great. (laughs) Yeah. And also usually like one sentence, she wrote a full blog post about her experience watching this movie the first time, which I think was pretty cool. True. That is cool, yeah. Um, the so, only other author I, I feel like I can think of that loved the adaptations were like J.K. Rowling, right? Um, maybe. Anyway. Probably? J.K. Rowling's been like pretty involved. Yeah, J.K. Rowling's also been super involved with Warner Brothers That's basically it, yeah. since her first uh, movie. Yeah. Or like since the first adaptation of Harry Potter. Anyways, all right. It was it was an interesting movie. Uh, but do we know what we're talking about next? We do. Uh, I have to figure out when we're going to record this one because on our next one we have a very special guest again to talk about the movie. I wrote it down. The day shall come, which looks super interesting. I don't know anything about what it's about, but it has a really cool poster. Whoa. 